So I invite you to turn to the book of John, chapter 3. Uh, often the first half of, the, of John 3 is one of the best-known passages of Scripture, John chapter 3, verse 16, and um, you know, even, even uh, professional wrestling fans know about that verse. Um, but um, but t- the second half of this chapter is not nearly as well-known, um, uh, and it is actually the conclusion of a section. So if you remember, in John chapter 1, at the beginning... Um, of this book, and I know it was several weeks ago, um, but at the beginning of the book we read about the testimony of John, all right, that John bears witness. Um, Verse 19, chapter 1 and verse 19, this is the testimony of John, meaning John the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And and like Jim said uh, today, uh, John, John the evangelist, the writer of the gospel, is going to call witnesses um, to the nature of Jesus. And the witness that he's going to call here, he's been calling since chapter 1 and verse 19, till here is John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Uh, their, their mothers were cousins, um, so they're like extended cousins, but um, they're, they're related, they're familiar with one another. Um, and, and John has been preaching in, in Israel for quite some time. He's handed over the reins, as it were, to Jesus kind of in chapter 1. And so we've got this breakdown. Now, the immediate question you might ask then is, okay, so if it starts with John, if John's testimony starts in chapter 1 and verse 19, what's with all the other stuff in between where John doesn't appear? And uh, I'm going to answer that question in a little bit. But let's go ahead and start. We're going to be in John chapter 3 and verse 22. And I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. Uh, after this, so after, his, uh, after everything that's happened between chapter 1 verse 19 and now. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. And John also was baptizing at Anon near, Sal- near Salim because water was plentiful there. And the people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, there's a, a couple things going on here that I, I just need to, to note so that you can put this in context. Um, apparently, the conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3 occurs in Jerusalem, in or around Jerusalem. And we know this because of the statement that Jesus then goes out into the Judean countryside. Jerusalem is the big city in Judea. Uh, now, Judea is, uh, is hill country, um, high, high mountain ranges. Um, it's, it's perfect for sheep and, and goats, um, olives and, and those kind of things. It's not so great for general agriculture, growing grains. It's not great for that. So you do that down in the plains. Um, and Israel has plenty of plains. There's a coastal plain. There's the Jezreel Valley is a big plain. There's areas where you can do that. But Jesus goes into the Judean countryside. Now, this is what people do after they've been at Jerusalem for a while. The city itself, during feasts, especially during Passover, the city would swell to close to a million people um, as people just moved in. And, and kind of, I mean, it was like Orlando uh, the week after Memorial Day. Just, it swells up. And so, um, after you've done whatever you're doing in Jerusalem, you don't want to be in a hot packed city. You go out into the hill country and you kind of chill and relax. 
And so Jesus goes out into the Judean countryside, and he's there, and his disciples are baptized. And we find out later um, in the book of John that Jesus himself doesn't actually baptize. His disciples are baptizing, but Jesus isn't actually the one dunking people. Okay? Um, so anyway, they go out and they're baptizing. And then in verse 23, it says, John was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Now, aren't you glad they provided that geographical marker so you could know what you were talking about? Um, don't we all, we all know where Anon near Salim is. All right. So let me, let me tell you what it is. So first of all, Anon is actually, um, it's just a transliteration of the Hebrew word Ein, which means spring. So Anon just means spring. And it's near Salim. Now, Salim is a village near the city of Beth Shean. Um, and, and let me give you what that is, because um, it's a fascinating place. It's actually the place where two major valleys, the Jordan River Valley and the uh, Jezreel Valley. So the Jezreel Valley is a big valley up in the north of Israel, just south of the Sea of Galilee. And it stretches from the, Mesopotamia, uh, the, Mes the Mediterranean Sea all the way across to the Jordan River. Well, the, the, so the Jezreel Valley runs north to south, or east to west, and the, uh, the Jordan Valley runs north to south, and Bethshion is the spot where they meet. Now, Bethshion today in Hebrew, the, in Israel, this is actually called the Valley of Springs. That's actually the local, regional name of it. Um, this, place, this site has been occupied since the Paleolithic period, but here's the weird thing about it. Bethshion has the highest recorded temperature in the entire world for any area occupied year-round. Okay, so, so Dead Sea gets really hot, but people don't live there year-round. Um, you know, uh, the Gobi Desert gets real hot. People don't live there year-round. Um, the Sahara gets real hot. People move around. They don't live there year-round. Betchion, people live there year-round. The highest recorded temperature in the entire world for a place where people live year-round, 125 degrees. Oh, yes. How do people live there? Now, the weird thing is it's, it's kind of, like I said, it's at the, the edge of two valleys. It's actually a ver relatively high elevation. It's up in the mountains, um, and it's basalt rock, right? So um, it's not limestone. A lot of, lot of rock in, in, uh, in Israel is limestone. It's pretty easy, malleable, light. Basalt is not like that at all. Um, but what happened, because of where it is, and because of the confluence of the mountain ranges, and because of the, the rock that's there, water pools an enormous number of springs all throughout this region. And so people can live there because there's water there year-round. Now notice what, John, what the gospel says, why John is there. Verse 23, John was baptizing at Anon, the spring near Salim, which is about five miles outside of Betchion, because water was plentiful there. Because um, there was water there. Uh, now today, this site is actually a park. It's called Ein Muda, which means lots of springs. Um, and you go there, you can actually go there, and for free, you can go and just swim in the springs. And there's actually, they have a thing called the, the water walk, which is exactly what it sounds like it is. You walk through water, deep, right? Um, and, and it's basically this idea, you go through these streams and stuff and springs, and it's, it's, a, it's a resort today, and it was a resort then. This was where the wealthy went 
to relax after they left the city. Now, it's right on the edge of Samaria. So it also had the advantage that Jews, the hyper-religious, super-critical Jews, could go there and look out at Samaria and pontificate about how much better than the Samaritans they were. So it had, had a double service, right? So John the Baptist is there at this resort town in the Valley of Springs, and Jesus is in the Judean Highlands, so he's somewhere to the south. We don't really know where Jesus is hanging out. Um, we find out later in chapter 4, though, that Jesus decides to leave Judea and go to Galilee. And those of you that are familiar with the, the story, in John chapter 4, he goes to the Samaritan town of Sychar, and at a well, he meets a Samaritan woman. He has this conversation. Well, um, actually, Sychar is on the way through the Judean highlands from Jerusalem to the place where John is. So Jesus may have known where his cousin was, and he was traveling through Sychar because he was going to get to where John was. I'm not going to get into all the history of that. Um, there's a lot of reasons that he might have been doing that. So John is baptizing at this place, and we get all this detail, and, and you sit there and you say, why do we have this detail? For example, verse 24, for John had not been yet been put in prison. Well, isn't that obvious? I mean, if he's baptizing, he's obviously not in prison, right? I mean, why add that detail? Well, John the Baptist, if you remember, all the way back weeks ago, John the Baptist was one of the most famous people of the time period. And he was considered, until he actually got arrested, basically untouchable. You, you couldn't touch John. He had a huge following. People worried about revolt if you, if you tried to attack him or anything. And then um, Herod, uh, one of the lesser Herods, was actually stupid enough to put him in jail and eventually behead him. Um, but, um, but John is, John is a, uh, a well-known guy. And so we're, we're setting this context. We're saying all this stuff happened before John was put in prison. That's an important detail because until John goes into prison, John is the big face of the preaching of repentance. Jesus has kind of a small following. Um, we read in chapter 1 that Jesus, uh, John, said to, John said to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God. When Jesus comes, G he talks to his disciples. But if you read that, only a small number of John's disciples follow Jesus. John is still the big celebrity. He's the guy everybody's looking to. And so when, they, when people have a question about Jesus, they go to John. Because they mistakenly believe that Jesus must be one of John's followers. Not understanding that G John is actually one of Jesus' followers. Verse, 20, verse 25, Now a discussion, that's a kind word for argument, arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew, one, one person, over the issue of purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, that's Jesus that they're talking about. They don't even know his name. He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, that might seem like an innocent question. It is actually meant to be a division. Can't you see that you are losing your people to this guy that you baptized? Don't you see that he's taking over? You've you got to do something with this. Now, 
Why is the big question? And in and, and verse 25, we, we find out that this starts because they have a discussion about purification. Well, what does that mean? Remember that John the Baptist, I mentioned that his mother was Jesus' mother's cousin. His father was a priest. Guess what that means John the Baptist was trained to be? A priest. So John the Baptist would have done all the necessary purification rituals in order to lead Jewish people. So no one had a problem with John, even though he looked funny and ate weird food. They had no problem with John baptizing people because he was pure. But who was Jesus? He was the son of a carpenter from <coughs> Nazareth of Galilee. Ew, yuck. And there, he is, he is, I, I make jokes like that just to get Rob to laugh. I love it when he does. <laughs> I love it when he does. Um, I get to, Jed to jack a laugh and I get Rob to laugh out loud. It's, it's, it makes my day. Um, so, so, but he gets to the, he gets to this moment he, and, and um, they, they say to John, like, look, this Jesus guy who came out of nowhere, he's got no reputation. He's not pure. He's not clean. He's off, he's forming disciples and he's baptizing people. Aren't you going to do something about this guy? That's really what they're asking him. They're willing to accept John's baptism because John's baptism is about repentance. John's baptism is about getting in line. John's baptism is about holiness. But what's with this Jesus guy and his disciples? And not only is Jesus unclean, but his disciples are unclean. We find out in other Gospels that his disciples are breaking all kinds of rules, mostly because they probably don't know them. They, when, when they get in trouble because they're walking through a field and they grab some grain and they rub it on the Sabbath day and everybody freaks out about them, I just picture Peter going, what? Like, he, it doesn't make any sense to them. They don't, they, they're, they're from Galilee. They're fishermen. You ever met a fisherman who was up to code on his Torah rules? And so, so Jesus has got these dirty disciples and he's, he's dirty, he's from Nazareth of all places, and he's drawing good Jewish people away. John, you've got to do something about this guy. And John, in verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. See, their mistake was thinking that John was getting his, uh, Jesus was getting his authority from John. And John's going to set them straight. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now that's in chapter 1. They ask him who he is. John says, I'm coming before the God of the Old Testament. He makes it very clear, I'm coming before the God of the Old Testament. He is coming back. It's not just a Messiah. This is God coming, God with us. Uh, the other Gospels record him as Emmanuel, which means God with us. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I don't know if you noticed this. Remember I said that this is John's testimony. And I asked the question, why is all that other stuff jammed in? Where was the first miracle? Cana, at what event? 
a wedding. What did I say the first sign was? That they didn't recognize Jesus. John says, I see him for who he is. I see the bridegroom for who he is. And I rejoice. This, is the, this by the way, is the careful composition of the Gospel of John. He's not going to be on the nose and go, remember when I said this? This is what I meant. John's gospel alludes and glosses and dances and bounces. It's very interesting composition. He's not going to say to you, I told you the story of the wedding so you would know that Jesus was the bridegroom. Rather, John tells you the story. John, the gospel writer, tells you the story of the marriage supper of Cana. So that then when you get to the words of John the Baptist about Jesus being the bridegroom, you, it will, things will click in. This is why I told you this story, John says. John the Gospel writer says. It's always confusing when we're dealing with two Johns. He says, uh, so he says, you yourselves bear witness. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He says, so in other words, Jesus is the one I've been here for. I'm just a friend who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice, which, by the way, you're not doing, is kind of implied. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You're looking at me and saying that I'm the big celebrity. John, John the Baptist says, you're looking at me and saying that I'm the big celebrity and I should get control of this unclean Galilean who I baptized and I'm telling you that my entire job was to draw attention to him and now that I have, I'm going to fade away and he is going to increase. They did not like that answer, I'm sure. Verse 31 he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Literally, over all. What was the second sign? First sign was the marriage supper of Cana. Second sign was the purification of the temple. When Jesus says, my father's house should be a house of prayer. John says, he who is above all. See, this is starting to make sense why John, the gospel writer, included those stories where he included them. It's because of the way that, G that John, the Baptist, bore witness of Jesus. The gospel is, this part of the gospel of John was composed around this confession of John the Baptist. He who is above all. He says, um, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Remember, they were struggling with the signs. They didn't get what Jesus was doing. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. What? Think about that for a second. John says that if you hear the voice of God, if you believe in Jesus, you are setting your seal. In other words, you are declaring it to be so. You're saying amen that God is true. You may not catch this, but John is subtly criticizing the rabbis and Jewish leaders of their day 
who have taken the stance that while God is great and wonderful and all that stuff and we worship him, um, we are the one who sets the standard of truth. All of the arguments that they get into that they ask Jesus about later in Jesus' life, why are they asking him about the woman whose husband died and he has to marry, she marries six brothers and who is she going to be with in the resurrection? Why are they asking him should he pay the temple taxes or not? Why are they asking all that questions? Because they're trying to decide who of the true witnesses Jesus will side with. And John is saying, you got it wrong. I bear witness of Jesus because God is true. You're looking for him to fit in your system. It's not going to work. You have to see him for who he is. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the word of words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. Do you see him glossing his conversation? Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. You must be born of water and spirit those who are led by the spirit are like the wind john again so again we've got this moment where it ties in why does john the gospel writer record the marriage supper and the the cleansing of the temple and jesus with nicodemus it's because it fit into the way that john the baptist bore witness of jesus For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. In case you were curious, John concludes, and just think about this. Remember that John the Baptist knew Mary, Jesus' mother. He grew up with them, which means he also knew what person? Joseph. When John the Baptist says, the father loves the son, he's saying, Joseph is not Jesus' father. Jesus' father is the father in heaven. John is bearing witness to that and what he says. The father loves the son and has given some things into his hand. All things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey, the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That wraps up Nicodemus. Nicodemus, we talked about the condemnation and the wrath of God and all those things. So John, the gospel writer, takes this statement by John the Baptist and he constructs a narrative of John the Baptist's testimony of Jesus, bearing witness to Jesus, that Jesus is the Lamb of God. So in other words, he's the fulfillment of the Passover, that Jesus is the, the, the payment, the true temple, that Je- the, because uh, he, he baptizes Jesus during uh, Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the year. He bears witness that Jesus is the true bridegroom. He is the, the true sovereign over this. That, by the way, is an allusion to the Song of Solomon and, um, and how the, the groom redeems the bride. And, and I did a series on Song of Solomon years ago where he talked about uh, all the different ways that it was read, especially by uh, Jewish and, and early Christian readers. Uh, John, John sees all of this. 
He sees, um, he sees these events in Jesus' life. Now, I'm talking about John, the gospel writer. He sees these events, the marriage supper, the cleansing of the temple, uh, the, the conversation with Nicodemus, and he sees how they fit in with John the Baptist, what John the Baptist said in this moment. And so that's where the structure of chapters 1 through 3 comes from. As you read the book of John, by the way, you will constantly see John doing this. He will create these small packages of stories, and they're not necessarily told in chronological order, but they fit with what is going to be testified about Jesus. And so that's why John is structured the way that it's structured. If I had to guess, I would say, based on the book of Revelation and the, and, and the letters to the churches there, I would guess that the churches that John is dealing with here in the second and third generation um, around 90 uh, A.D., these people who have grown up in the church, they're, they're no, they, they weren't eyewitnesses. They didn't know any eyewitnesses. If I had to guess, I would say that there were an awful lot of believers in the church at this time who had decided to bear witness to uh, the church more than they had decided to bear witness to the Christ. They were getting distracted. They were getting uh, drawn over. And if you want to see those distractions, all you have to do is read Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. And you can see how the people of the churches were getting distracted. They were being drawn off by false prophets, by, uh, uh, by sects and groups uh, like the Nicolaitans. Uh, they were being drawn off by sensual pleasures. They were, some of them were just losing faith. They were just dragging and, and John, he's not saying, uh, by the way, the, he, he never says that these people have somehow uh, abandoned Christ, just that they've kind of put their focus on more immediate concerns. And like the Jews who said they were looking for the Messiah, looking for God to come and redeem them, but really were looking for their own authority and their own direction and their own truth and their own wisdom and their own temple and their own way. John reminds these people to know your role. And we don't like to hear this. We don't like to be told what to do. But we as Christians have a job. We have one job. Now it takes on a lot of different shapes and a lot of different forms, but we have one job job. And that job is the same job that John the Baptist had, to bear witness of Jesus. We have one job. These Christians that John is writing to, they started to think about the tasks over the job. Ever had a boss that worked like that? was more concerned with you ticking off the boxes than you finishing the job. I remember going to work for Fidelity Investments as a 401k telephone customer service representative. Now, I know a little bit about retirement stuff. I worked for investment firms when I was uh, an investment firm when I was in college. Um, I know a little bit about the industry. I know just enough to get in trouble. Do not come to me for investment advice. It's a terrible idea but I know enough about how the industry works. 
when I got to that job, I thought, well, this is cool. It's a nice part-time job. I was working it because the church was, we were in an economic slump in New Hampshire. Um, the church couldn't really afford to pay me. So I was, I was taking a part-time job, had health benefits, all kinds of stuff. It was a really great gig um, on the short term. It was four hours a day. We only had one car, so I got to ride my bike from Mar Manchester to Merrimack every day, 11 miles one way. So I was in shape on top of everything else. It was working out for me. The problem was that my job was literally to go down a checklist. We had a call flow. It came up in the web browser. When the phone call came through, you read this question and you checked their answer. Then you read the question that came up and you checked their answer. And you read the question that came up. Now, those of you that know me, can you imagine my mind trying to handle that? My brain trying to just follow the pattern. It was torture. It was because I'd be talking to people and somebody would say something about their family or their kids. Or I got a call one time from this guy. He was a pipeline, like a pipeline engineer with BP in Alaska who had never looked at his 401k. And he was closing to retirement. He called. He just wanted to see how much money he had. He had two and a half million dollars in his account. He had never looked at it. He had never, I mean, he hadn't even invested it. It was like in a money market. He had just dumped money into this, into this one account. And, and, and I'm having a conversation with my jaw drops. I'm having, I'm just chit-chatting with this guy. I had no idea what his balance was. The system was running slow or something. We're talking and stuff. And that went, his account came up and I kid you not, I'm talking to the guy. I think his name was John, another John in this story. I, I was talking to him and my manager came flying from her cubicle. I don't know if she got an alert. There's like a alert that there's a big bank account or something. She comes flying from her cubicle, comes up over my wall and goes, fuck this, get this call. Because there's an agent, a group that's supposed to handle calls with people over a certain dollar amount. And he was way over it. And I was not supposed to be taking that call. And when I, <laughs> I kid you not, I transferred him to the, to the other advisor, like the special team, and they messed up his account. He called back. Now, Fidelity is a huge company. And you know the first thing he said when he called back? Can you find Eric? <laughs> and they, they searched trying to figure out who had taken his first call. Because he didn't want to talk to the guy that messed up his account. He didn't want to talk to anybody. He wanted to talk to the guy that was chit-chatting with him about living in Alaska. He, that was, that was what he, who he wanted to talk about. I do not do well with checklists. But you all know that there are people who are so obsessed with tasks that they actually fail to do the job. They check off all the lists, but they don't complete the job. Our task, our job as Christians is to bear witness to Jesus. But we all find ourselves distracted by the tasks, don't we? It's, it's hard sometimes to maintain things. Uh, it's especially hard when you have false tasks. Well, in order for you to bear witness to Jesus, you have to live a perfect life. There can't be anything wrong with you. You know what is born out of people trying to live out a perfect life? Hidden sin. Now, I'm not saying you got permission to sin. In fact, the Bible actually says the opposite. But you do have a permission to fail, repent, and continue. And when you try to live a perfect life because everybody's watching me. Everybody's judging Jesus by who I am. I have to be absolutely perfect. You know what's going to happen? 
you might be able to build that perfect edifice. You might be able to build that perfect persona to the outside and everybody looks at you and adores you and worships you and thinks you are the greatest thing since sliced bread, which by the way is awesome if you've ever tried to slice bread. Um, the, this, you, you, just, you, you build this perfect persona and then you fail in one area and suddenly you are the worst person that ever lived. Our job is not to be perfect. Our job is to bear witness to Jesus. Our job is not to come up with the perfect system for living a Christian life. If you just follow these seven steps with 18 subpoints, you will be a perfect Christian. Did you check the list? That's not our job. Our job is to bear witness of Jesus both in our successes and in our failures. One of the most one of the reasons that the 23rd Psalm resonates so very well with believers throughout history is because if you read the 23rd Psalm, it is all about highs and lows and God's presence. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, right? That's in the same Psalm that says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You lead me beside green pastures. It's the same, the same Psalm that talks about our enemies, talks about living in the house of the Lord forever. Bearing witness is not about you. It's about him. It's not about the friend of the bridegroom. It's about the bridegroom. It's not about building myself up so much that everybody looks at me and then I can point them to Jesus. It is about taking what God gives me in my life and making it about Jesus. The greatest gospel witness in the world, in all of history, is now, has always been, and will always be, God's people exalting Christ. The worst witness in the world will be, has been, and always will be, God's people exalting anything else. We have to constantly keep a check on ourselves that we are not prioritizing our success over his praise and his glory. We have to keep a constant check on ourselves that we're not prioritizing our failures over his grace and his glory. Our purpose, like John the Baptist's purpose, is to look at the world and see Jesus glorified in all things. And sometimes... That leads to greatness from a human standard. Sometimes it results in you being beheaded by a corrupt ruler who was trying to please his teenage stepdaughter, which is what happened to John the Baptist. But regardless what the end result is for you, your job is to exalt Christ. That's our job. That's our sole job. That's our sole purpose. The tasks that we do in order to accomplish that, they vary by time, by age, by, by period, by setting, by context. But that's our place. That's our purpose. That's our role. That's our job. Would you join me in a word of prayer? In all things, Jesus, may you be the sole purpose. Focus.
Not just the center crowded by other gods, but the single focus. May all things be pushed behind so we look only to you. May those who do not yet know you as Lord and Savior see us in all of our brokenness and our struggles, our doubts, our frustrations, our successes and our failures, and see him. Jesus, may your presence pervade our relationships. May your spirit speak as only he can to transform lives renew hearts, open doors, redeem our souls. All things for you, Jesus. All things through you, Jesus. All things to you, Jesus. We pray this to you, our Lord. Amen. My brothers and sisters, go in peace. About 11